0: Thanks, Mark. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be reading from verses 15 to 29. So are the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now... to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory he is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me
1: Well, good evening. Uh, My name's Rod. If you are new here and I haven't met you, uh, great to have you along again. As you've heard from Mark, we're uh, working on our mission statement over these next couple of weeks. We do this at the start of every year. We've done it for about a decade. And the reason we do is it's really good to resharpen our focus as a church, what we're about each year. I think it's really good as individuals too that we think hard as we're at the top of a new year, as it were, and look ahead to how uh, we might fulfill uh, that mission uh, in our own lives. So there's a bit of an outline, as usual, on the back of the bulletin that may be helpful uh, as we look at this passage from Colossians on this theme of uh, knowing Christ. But let me pray for us firstly, ask that God will really help us as we grapple with this topic together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you have not left us in the dark, but rather you have revealed yourself uh, through your word and ultimately in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we do ask tonight, as we think about Uh, knowing him more, that you might uh, grant us understanding, that you might challenge us afresh as to how we are responding to him. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Now, I'm not into uh, name-dropping, but look, I wanted to introduce you to a couple of friends of mine tonight. Uh, First of all, there's Lizzie, or Queen Elizabeth II, for those who are unacquainted with her. I went to visit her a few years ago with my wife, Christine, Uh, We went to her house, Buckingham Palace. I'm not really sure if she was in, actually. We didn't get past the gates or the guards, and um, there's a shot of her backyard. We never got to that either. Um, But, you know, uh, we got close, and I do know somebody that made it into the backyard. That's uh, Christine's parents. My parents-in-law, they got a private audience with the Queen. Well, when I say private, there were a few hundred people there in the backyard. They were just guests at one of these garden parties, and they just won the tickets in a lottery, but, you know, they were there with her. They, they met her and all of the family. Well, they didn't actually speak to her as such or shake her hand, but, they, you know, they saw her a few metres away. You know, we know the Queen. And then there's my good friend Ricky Ponting, a former Australian cricket captain, appears on TV commentating these days. I've been in his presence, I don't know, maybe 100 times. Um, there were a lot of other people there at the same time cheering him at the Sydney cricket ground, but I was there with him. I saw him, some of his high points, scoring centuries. Um, I have got closer, mind you. I've been out in the cricket practice nets behind the ground and seen him from just a couple of metres away. Again, I didn't really get to speak to him or shake hands. He didn't really look at me either. Probably looked through me as he walked past one time. Um, But, you know, I've met Ricky. I've even got a bat to prove it. Uh, It doesn't have my name on it. It has my son's name, Harrison. Harrison, best wishes, Ricky Ponting. Um, But, you know, it's a priceless memento, um, even if it was at a Rex owner ad at Chatswood Over, where we used to live nearby. Um, I didn't even get it written, but um, there was a friend of Christine's that went across the road realising the ad was happening and got him to sign the bat. It was actually signed by the New Zealand captain as well, Stephen Fleming. It was interesting, the mum that went and got it signed didn't even know who Stephen Fleming was. But, you know, it's still important to me that we've got this bat. I know Ricky, or punter as his friends call him, Well, look, I imagine you're pretty impressed at this point of my personal knowledge about these two public figures. You should be, because we're used to differentiating, aren't we, between knowing about a person and really knowing somebody. And I think that same danger exists with knowing Jesus. See, I'd be self-deceived, I'd be deluded if I really thought I was friends with the Queen or with Ricky Ponting. But the same thing can happen with people thinking they know Jesus. A person can know a great deal about Jesus without actually having much knowledge of him. You see, in the passage we're looking at today, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about having a personal relationship with Christ and a relationship that leads to maturity. And so the big question I want us to consider tonight is this. What does it look like to have a mature knowledge of Christ. What does a mature knowledge of Christ involve, if I'm to say I know Christ? Well, that leads me to the first point. Point one on your outline, Christ's authority. So notice again uh, what Paul uh, writes from verse 15, Colossians 1. "'The Son is the image of the invisible God, "'the firstborn over all creation.'" For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy." So I put to you tonight that the first thing uh, that would show that we have a mature knowledge of Christ is to recognize his complete authority. We've got to know who we are dealing with. Along with John chapter 1 and perhaps the opening verses of Hebrews 1, this section of Colossians is arguably the greatest statement in the whole of the New Testament about the supremacy of Jesus in everything. And so here we have in verses 15 to 17, Christ being supreme in creation over the creation indeed. And not only is he fully God with the Father uh, so that he is the perfect image or the embodiment of the Father's character, but he actually creates the world with the Father. He's created everything. And more than that, he sustains our universe. I don't know if you've ever reflected on that, that you know, our world is still spinning at this moment. The universe is still... Upheld because Christ wills it, because He's chosen to sustain it. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. And so we exist as a result um, for Him. Notice that He's more than just the creator, everything was created through Him, but also for Him. And so our lives belong to Him. We exist not for ourselves or our puny plans, what we might be thinking of doing tomorrow or the next day. But we exist for him. Indeed, you could argue our lives only have meaning in him. And I think as we reflect on that deeply and what that might mean day to day, it's a great challenge to us. And the reason is this, I think even those who would claim to follow Jesus often see themselves as in charge of their life. We're taught by our society, our culture, to shape our thinking around our plans, our desires. And so we determine our self-fulfillment in those kind of categories that relate to what we're seeking to achieve. Have I got into the uni that I wanted? Have I got the job now that I'm desiring or I'm planning to get it? Have I got the career that will give me the pay or the status that I think I'm deserving of? Am I living in the suburb that I want to live in? Do I have a relationship that makes me happy? Now, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, Relationships, work, education, these are wonderful things. They're great gifts from God that are a blessing to us. They're part of our human experience. And they can be used for God's service that we might honor and know Christ more. But they often can be just simply self-serving. Our plans, our thinking, it's just about us and Christ is separate. He's missing from the picture sometimes altogether. Or at least he's just a sideline to it. Now, there was a guy uh, back in the early 20th century called J. Campbell White. Uh, He was the leader of an organization called the Layman's Missionary Movement. It was founded in 1906 by a bunch of businessmen who were really keen to get on board with things they saw happening in universities in the US for the first time. There was a building student movement, um, something we know well today where people were evangelizing uh, on campuses and they wanted to support that financially and in other ways back it. Well, um, you know, Jay Campbell White was an ordinary guy, um, even according to himself. He lived, he was born and lived and died in Ohio. Uh, He was never greatly known, did anything that this world would be excited about But he wrote these words in 1909 as he talked about serving in this ministry. He said this, Most people are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within us except the adoption of Christ's purpose towards the world that he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, Riches, these are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and the abiding joy of working with God in the fulfillment of his eternal plans. Let me say to you, he wrote, the people who are putting everything, everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. So it's a wonderful statement. And my question to you is that your response to Christ's authority, his rule over your life at this moment? It's certainly a challenge to me because as we return to Colossians chapter 1, do you notice here that not only is Christ supreme over all his creation in verses 15 to 17, including our lives, but he's also head of the church. He's supreme over the new creation to come as well. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He has the first place in all things. He's the great shepherd of his people. And anyone who serves from a leader in a church onwards are simply his servants. And with regard to the new creation, well, he again will enjoy that status as the one that's preeminent. He's the creator, the sustainer of all things. He's in charge of the past, the present, and the future, if you like. Everything is about him. And so the question is, how are we responding to his rule? Well, that leads me to a second point. Point two on your outline, knowing Christ personally. Look, if all that's true, if Jesus has all that power and authority, then the question is, how can I be in a personal relationship? How can I really know somebody with such grand control of all things? Well, see how Paul goes next in verses 19 to 22. He writes, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. See, it's it's one thing to acknowledge Christ's authority over all things. It's another thing to actually be engaged in a personal relationship as we already heard uh, through the interview earlier. And from verse 19 onwards here, we see that uh, not only is Jesus our creator and sustainer, but he's also our redeemer. He's the way that we can be right with God. We're told here that we can be reconciled with God through him and through his shedding of his blood on the cross. Now, you may have heard the good news a million times, but I think it should strike us again as we hear the words of what our natural state was before that moment of trust in Jesus. You notice here how Paul talks about us in our natural state as alienated from God, as enemies from God. These are strong words. We tend to glance over them because we've known them or we've read them before. That's a powerful statement. If we see enemies, humanly speaking, in this world, we see the aggression and the violence and the fear and the loathing that that kind of word, alienation or enemy, means. It's a powerful, it's a scary thing. Look, I was just up in Sydney a few weeks ago or we on our holiday break. We went up with the family and we visited the Sydney Aquarium. I think it's called Sea Life now. And been a number of years since we'd been there. We thought we'd go up uh, with the kids again and we're uh, wandering around. There's been a few changes. They've obviously made some money with all the tourists going through there. They've shuffled some things around. Um, but I think still the most important or bit that people enjoy is the, the tunnels where you go underneath and see the sharks and the big stingrays uh, gliding right over your head And so we wound through those tunnels, as everybody does, and then you come up these ramps up to the top and you're looking down on the tank uh, from above that same area. And we'd got about halfway around uh, that area uh, when there was this huge ruckus down the other end. And we were shocked and turned around and there was this fight that had started. Uh, We'd been followed for about an hour or so by this really large group of people, about three or four families together. Uh, It was probably 20, 25 people and two young guys within this group, looked 18 or 19, were throwing punches at each other. The shirts were actually ripped. One was trying to hold one over and sort of force him into the tank. We thought, if he falls, this is going to be interesting. Sharks and all. And But our kids were in shock. What's going on here? Uh, the violence was really strong. The emotions were high. There was a lot of yelling. Um, the family members were calling uh, for security to come and break it up. They were so worried about what was happening. Well... Um, eventually, two older guys within this group managed to separate them. Um, they sort of sent one guy on ahead, and they sort of held this other guy, who I think wanted to chase him. And um, they had him sort of pinned there for a while, and security did arrive. We sort of beat a hasty retreat and started going back down the ramps. But we'd only got about halfway down, and obviously this guy who was restrained had got away from him and came bounding down and jumping over the ramps running through the crowd, chasing after this guy that had left, obviously looking for round two. Hopefully the security got him first. Um, but it was a shock to us. The kids were like, wow, what is going on here? It's supposed to be a relaxed environment. And here are these people who are in desperate need of reconciliation. There was great alienation clearly between these two young men about what I don't know. But what a desperate need for peace and for things to be brought back together. When we see that, I think uh, we feel the weight of um, alienation and rejection. And I think we need to grasp that, that that was our standing before God in our natural state. And yet God can reconcile us through Jesus, through his son he sent for us. Look, as we come back to the passage, notice in verse 22, uh, that not only are we alienated, we're enemies from God, rejected God, but we've also blemished as a result. We're told that our stain of sin is great before God. And yet again, Jesus can solve that. Not only can we be brought back as friends, but the sin that has separated us, that's alienated us from God, can be dealt with. A clean slate can be reinstalled. Free from accusation through Christ's work, acquitted of our sin... And the question, I guess, is how can that happen? How can Jesus' perfection be applied to those who are enemies of God? And it's one simple word in verse 23. We appropriate this wonderful grace of God simply through faith. It's through a person trusting Jesus' actions on their behalf, his death, his resurrection, which pays for our sin and its consequence of death. And, of course, this is the good news, the gospel which we're called to believe in and which we're not to move on from either in verse 23. This is how a person can know Jesus, personally know him, enter into a relationship with him. It's by placing faith in our substitute who came for us. But knowing Christ personally means more than just starting. There's a whole journey then that begins. We're called to follow him. And so how will that unfold as we go on with Christ? Well, it actually continues the way we start in repentance and faith, not to move on from that. Paul talks about not simply following Jesus, but in verse 23, being his servant. That's how we're to view ourselves if we've been saved by this one. We're now his to do his bidding. And that path, well, that may be difficult. Paul goes straight to the fact in verse 24 that that's going to produce some suffering and difficulty in his life. Indeed, that had been his experience already. And yet, he says, there's just such a wonderful future for those that are in Christ. We don't worry about the struggles of the present. It is more than worth it to follow him because there is this future glory, verse 27, that awaits those who are in Jesus. And so how are we to grow between that starting point and that end point that's so glorious. I think Paul points us to it in verses 28 and 29. Have a look with me at those two key verses. Paul states, He is the one, that is Christ, that we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me, see, we grow in our relationship with Jesus by hearing and responding to his word. That's why Paul can summarize his role as simply proclaiming Jesus, teaching and admonishing. As an apostle, that's what he was to do. That's what we're to do. That's what we're entrusted with today. This is the path to Christian maturity. We're to hear Christ's word. We're to heed Christ's word. We're to do it. Now, this path to Christian maturity, this growing in Christ it's a lifetime task. that's not something where I think, oh well I've grown the first couple of years I've reached this plateau now. I can just switch off you know I've, I've made it as it were as a Christian. Uh, the curve is always going up for the believer. There's no plateauing we've got to continue to grow. It's a lifelong pursuit. Notice here it's for everyone too. it's not just for those who are super keen or something. Paul says he wants all the truth of God to be known by all believers. He wants everyone to grow to maturity, you and I. And that leads us to a final question. This is my final point. If all that's true, you know, what does mature knowledge of Jesus really look like? I mean, Paul's goal, he's saying his life, is all about presenting every believer mature in Christ. How does he know if he's made it? Does he get to his end of his life and he's not sure what's happened in that regard? Is it just somebody, as we think about it today, that reads their Bible every day rather than every second day? Is it some subjective feeling that, you know, look, I feel more committed to Jesus this year than I did last year, or I really think I know a bit more this year than I did last year? Or is it more concrete than that? Well, let me argue that Paul actually unpacks the answer to that question in the rest of the letter. What does the life of a mature believer look like? We'll just keep reading chapter 2, 3 and 4 and going on through. I want to just highlight three important planks that flow on in chapters 2 and 3. How do I know if I'm growing into maturity as a Christian? Firstly, it involves rejecting false teaching. As you read on in Colossians, Paul spends the whole of chapter 2 talking about some heresies that have been infiltrating the church and how believers have to stand firm on the gospel and not to move away from what they've started with it's all about rejecting false teaching staying strong with the grace of god let me take you to the three key verses verses 6 to 8 in chapter 2 so then paul writes just as you receive Christ Jesus in lord as lord continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. This is the first key plank to understanding whether we're reaching Christian maturity. It's to reject false teaching. And the way to do that is to continue in faith alone, in Christ alone. Now look, I think there are a thousand and one deceptive philosophies. There have been for the last 2,000 years. And some of them are really obvious to us today. There can be the false Christian cult uh, so-called, Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons who put a new spin on who Jesus is and undermine the gospel of grace. They're perhaps more obvious to us. then there's the more subtle false teaching, so-called Christian false teaching, which can sneak into the church. On the one hand, the prosperity gospel. On the other hand, perhaps legalism. Prosperity gospel saying that, well, if God is blessing you now as somebody is in Christ, then blessing equals the absence of suffering in your life. And so you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Things will just go well for you all the time. It's a nonsense, but it's taught in many places around the world. We've already read Paul only gets five seconds past talking about faith in Jesus, and he's saying, how are you going to suffer if you follow him? This is what my experience has been. The whole New Testament is saturated with the difficulty of following Jesus, that it's not a walk in the garden. Yes, there is wonderful blessing of being in Christ, but he does not promise us a life that is perfection, that is free from trouble, that's all about my comfort and complacency that he might take me on a nice, safe journey from cradle to grave. Not at all. What about the issue of legalism? Well, Paul gets to that because it's a big issue in Colossae. Verses 16 to 18, he gives four examples that were present in that day. But you could probably come up with another 400 today. But the ones he lists there are, are raising food laws. You have to eat this, but you can't eat that. Um, special religious festivals. If you don't um, appear at this festival, then you're not doing the right thing or you should be at this thing. Keeping the Sabbath, doing certain things or not doing certain things on a Sunday, being somehow making you right with God. The worship of angels. See, maturity involves rejecting false teaching, not being taken in by these things. It also involves warning others, being willing to step up to the plate and say, That's not helpful, what they're telling you. Bringing them back to the gospel. Well, there's one plank. Second plank for Christian maturity, growth in godliness. That's where Paul goes next, chapter 3. First 14 verses of chapter 3 are all about how a believer should be growing in their ability to live for Jesus. Let me just take you to verses 5 and 9 to 10. Paul writes this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Notice we've got this uh, clothing analogy here. Uh, put off the old, put on the new. Paul's got a list of sins, verses 5 to 9. Here are the things that no longer belong to somebody who's claiming to know Christ. This is the old way, we're to get rid of them. But not only do we need to turn away from certain things and actions and attitudes in our life, but we're now to put on the new self through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We're to clothe ourselves, Paul says, verse 12, with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness. Or in verses 13 and 14, patience and love. And that verb translated renewed in verse 10, which is really a key to the way this passage is unfolding, is a present participle. What that's indicating is this is a continual, ongoing process. This is not a once-only or for a year or so. This is the rest of our life, ongoing process of change as we're being renewed more and more to be like Jesus, our Saviour. The more we know Jesus, the more we become like him, is Paul's argument through this passage. So how do I know I'm growing in Christian maturity? I'll reject false teaching. I'll be growing in godliness. And thirdly and finally, Christian maturity involves united service. Unity in believers together, but also serving. Have a look with me where um, Paul goes next from chapter three, verses 15 to 17. He writes, "'Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, "'since as members of one body you are called to peace, "'and be thankful.'" Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think it's a really key passage and I want to dwell on this final point tonight. When you get to this section here, you see that um, Paul's got a great concern for the local church. He loves the local church and he wants them to be united in their common faith in Jesus, to get along together. Now look, as we think about ourselves, even in the 6 p.m. service, there are a number of people from all different nationalities. We've come from different places around Australia, around the world, many backgrounds, let alone our different characters and all the influences that have brought us to this point in our life. And yet God has brought us together in this place as one body through our common faith in the Lord Jesus. And it's a miracle in a sense that that happens and that we're here together. But it's also something that we've got to continue to work at. We have this common bond in Jesus. But we need to keep growing and loving and caring for one another, of really, truly being united. Now, look, I'm really thankful that we've had a wonderful sense of unity in our church for some years now. But it's not something that you just take for granted. It just doesn't happen by osmosis. We've got to keep working and working at sharing and including and being involved in other people's lives and working through the hard things together when they come up. I don't know if you noticed here, but uh, Paul's arguing really that Christ rules in our hearts. And if he does, then his peace will rule in our fellowship as well. See, if, if you were always in disagreement with different people at church or you're struggling in relationships all the time and you're wanting... Um, to argue or disagree about this or that, the question that we've got to ask if we're agitated like that is whether Christ's peace is ruling in our heart or not. Because it will flow over, our relationship with Jesus then translates into the way we relate to other people. But Notice in this passage, uh, Paul not only wants believers to get along, which they should, but he wants them to serve together. Uh, more than just caring and loving one another, he wants them to be united in the way they function that they might serve the body. Maturity involves serving. I really want to encourage you tonight to think about how you're going to serve at church in 2017. Maybe you think, look, um, I'm already really involved. i mean this, that, and the other. And look, I think I'm just going to play the record again from last year. I was involved in those things. I'll just keep doing the same look, that's great. Perhaps that's really where God's going to lead you. But I'd encourage you to stop and reflect whether that's the case. Sometimes we become quite comfortable or complacent doing the thing that we're already enjoying or that we feel like we can do well, when God may be planning to stretch us and use us in new ways to involve us in new ministries. And I think often when we think about those things, we think about our convenience, I think So often we, think, we hear the word serving and we think burden, uh, hard work. You know, what am I going to sign up to this year? What will that involve It's going to cost time and effort? Rather, when we hear the word service, we should think true joy. Let me argue that for you. Uh, John Piper, the well-known American pastor and writer, um, noted for his book, especially some 20 years or so ago now, Desiring God says in that book that pursuing Christ's agenda rather than your own is actually how you fight for joy as a believer. He noted that uh, some people respond to unpacking this through the Bible as a biblical truth to saying, well, look, if you're saying that then, then you've you've really got to be sold out. Uh, You're saying that the people that can be fully joyful are really only the missionaries, You know, the ones that have given up all the complacencies and distractions of this life and have just committed their whole life to being in a difficult environment. and Therefore, they're so uh, committed to Christ's cause that they're going to find true joy, but no one else can. Well, Piper responds to that assumption saying this. So the answer to that is no. Uh, you don't have to be a missionary in order to make your life serve the great purposes of God. But if you want to be satisfied with the lasting output of your life, you can't just go on with business as usual. You can't just do your work, make money, give your tithe, eat, sleep, play and serve occasionally at church, he says. Rather, instead, you're going to have to stop. You're going to have to perhaps go away for a few days, take your Bible with you and a notepad and think hard about how God might use you in the time and place that he's placed you for his glory. And pray and think. That Christ be known and praised and enjoyed and feared among all the peoples of the earth. Now, I think our culture works against that. So, look, I haven't got time to actually pray and read the Bible as much as I want. How am I going to really stop and think about how God might use my life this year? Well, I know that acknowledgement is important. I think this self-examination is hard for us. Sometimes it's because we lack the commitment to really do that. That'll mean extra things to think hard about. Sometimes we are really enthusiastic. We're keen to serve God as fully as we can, but we're kind of overwhelmed by all the options or the possible opportunities that lay before us. Maybe that's you. If so, let me uh, respond this way. In his book, Just Do Something, um, Kevin DeYoung offers the following analysis of the mindset of Christians uh, in the Western world today. And I think it's a bit alarming. He argues the following. The hesitancy so many of us feel in making decisions and settling to serve in this or that is due to our unparalleled freedom. Nothing is settled any longer after high school. Indeed, it's not even settled after university. Life is wide open. It's just filled with endless possibilities. But with this sense of opportunity comes confusion, anxiety, and indecision. As a result, we're often full of passivity, he writes. We're empty on, follow, on follow-through. The better way is actually the biblical way. Seek first the kingdom of God. I think he's right, but it's really challenging. Now, I started with the question... What does mature knowledge of Christ involve? I hope we've seen that it firstly involves recognizing Jesus' authority, that he really does rule your life and all the decisions you're going to make tomorrow and the next day and the next year. He's in charge. And that secondly, he really desires a personal relationship where we're engaged with him and we're really growing. He's done everything to reconcile us to God and he desires that we move on and grow in our following of him thirdly it really involves pushing on to maturity and the question of maturity is one where we've got to think harder i think we've seen tonight in colossians that it involves rejecting false teaching it involves growing in godliness being serious about doing that this year and thirdly and i think most importantly it involves being united as we serve him the, I think often we think um, knowledge is sort of an ivory tower thing. You know, I know Christ more, so I go away and study some heavy theological books and I'll know Jesus more. We know Christ more through serving him because it's then that the rubber hits the road. It's as we put our shoulder to the wheel, it's as we get our hands dirty, as we rub up against other flawed Christians like ourselves and struggle with our own mistakes, that we really grow in Christ as we seek to live for him. And so this year I put it to you that the answer to that question about how you're going to grow this year will depend on how committed you are to serve. It depends a lot on what you place in your path. I think sometimes we think that path to growth, um, it just sounds hard work. But I think as we should have seen tonight, it's a path that leads to true joy. Joy comes as we really give ourselves to Christ's cause. It's where we give up on our own plans and desires and say, Jesus, I want to live for your plans. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is just so clear through the Apostle Paul, uh, that you've called us into a relationship with yourself if indeed we've placed our trust in Jesus. And this is a dynamic, it's an ongoing changing relationship where you call us to grow as we follow him. And Lord, that means a level of commitment, a desire to really give ourselves in service to you. Help us to see uh, that that not only will produce growth as you stretch us, but it will also bring great joy. Not a superficial happiness, perhaps, as the world defines it, but a deep and abiding joy where we know that we are planning and seeking to live for your kingdom. Help us to do so, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name.